All right, thank you, ladies. Good morning, happy new year, happy epiphany. If you're not a churchy person, epiphany uh, just means God's speaking, and that's good news, right? He reveals himself to us. And uh, I don't know about you, but after coming out of holidays, it's always good news to know that God is still speaking, right? Uh, Because there's a lot of crazy that happens uh, at the end of December. And so we look at January and we say, thank God. Thank God we're we're all still here. And so we are um, starting a new series today. on the way of Jesus, we, uh, if you were here in the fall, you know, uh, basically from September uh, up, until, up through November, we, we taught a series on spiritual formation, and, and our tagline for that series, uh, we'll throw it up on the screen here again, was practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. And we said that this is kind of a shift for us as a church, um, not that we want to stop looking outward into our community, serving our community, loving our neighbors ourselves, but we said if we're going to do that in a sustainable way, that mission has to be undergirded by deep formation, right? That without formation, there can be no long-term mission because we can't give to our community what we ourselves have not received. And so this vision this fall, we talked about uh, basically the way of Jesus being three things, at least three things, learning to be with Jesus, learning to become like Jesus, and learning to do what Jesus did, right? That's, that's the call of apprenticeship or discipleship for all of us who are followers of Jesus and all of us are on a spectrum of what that actually looks like in our practice in our daily lives and then we do that together and then the focus of that is not so that we become some kind of holiness uh, bubble but for the life of the world that everything that we receive is given to us not just as a privilege but as a responsibility to be redirected outward to uh, for the good of our community to be a counterculture we've said in the past for the common good And so we come in today, we're beginning to unpack the practices. So there's 11 core practices. Again, this is not all that it means to be a disciple, but this is kind of, uh, if you want to think of this as the core operating system. These are the things that the Bible, the patterns that the Bible tends to talk about over and over and over again that are essential for us to experience life as the people of God uh, in the world. So what we're going to do over the next two years, so it's like two years, I don't know if I'll be here in two years, but just give you a big vision for this is we're going to unpack these 11 practices in little three to four week modules. And so the month of January will be in uh, Sabbath Way of Life. Uh, then in February, we're going to start a book series on Exodus. And we're going we're to kind of uh, put these two back and forth. We're going to juxtapose Exodus with spiritual formation. For about six weeks, we'll be in Exodus. Then we'll stop for Lent, and we'll have a series on prayer and then we'll get back into Exodus, and so we'll go back and forth between spiritual formation and some other series. But today, for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about Sabbath way of life, right, about rest. Now, I said in the first uh, service, this is the first time I've been so excited to preach on Sabbath, right, mostly because I'm terrible at it. Historically, I've been very bad at it. I know you're thinking, you're a pastor, you should be better. I should, but I'm not. Uh, So I've been practicing an intentional Sabbath really for about five years um, and it's been one of the most life-changing things for me. Like, it's been a total paradigm shift in the way that I think about my life, about being a, a man, a husband, a father, a Christian. And so I'm excited to bring this. And I said to the first service, this is the first time I don't think I've ever uh, had to have an intro, right? Because all I have to do is ask you, are you exhausted, right? Like, that's kind of my introduction. But somebody said, no, I'm not convinced that you don't need an introduction. You need to still convince us. Because if we were convinced that rest is important, we would do it more frequently, Right? Um, but the reality is we are kind of terrible at it. And so I want to talk for just a minute about why. Why Sabbath? What is Sabbath? How do we do Sabbath? We're going to spend these first two weeks talking about uh, the idea of Sabbath rest. 
And then the last two weeks of this month, we're going to talk about something I know you're really excited about, which is silence and solitude. And the, the irony is not lost in us that we're talking about silence and solitude. But uh, Sabbath this week and next week, and then uh, silence and solitude uh, from the life of Jesus, and then uh, from one of the prophets in the Old Testament. So let's start by talking about some of the things that keep us from experiencing Sabbath, from experiencing rest. Um, some of those are personal, and then some of those things are, are, are systemic. Uh, again, after the first service, I was talking to some, uh, a, a business owner, uh, and he was saying, like, you know, it's easier for me to grab onto a message like Sabbath He's, uh, you know, in his 40, late 40s, um, and, he, and he runs a business. And he's like, I have total control of my schedule. So, like, if I want to shut down my email on Friday, I can tell my employees and my executive team to stop emailing me, and I have a lot of control. He said, I wonder about the people who don't have control of their schedule. I wonder, so he's kind of like ruling class, you know, like, and then what about the rest of us plebes that are kind of like in this system in the marketplace uh, that have young children that are busy moms, uh, you know, just uh, grad students, talk to several grad students, they're just like, I don't even know how you could do Sabbath in grad school because I'm studying all the time, I've got boards that I'm preparing for, I've got this big test that I've got to take like every three days. And so um, we, we, some of this is systemic and some of it's personal. Uh, I think the big theme that we could kind of talk about as a culture that we could all agree on is that we live in a culture of exhaustion. We live in a culture of exhaustion. Not only that, that um, we are exhausted, but we actually, in weird ways, value exhaustion. It's like a badge of honor to say, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I'm busy, right? Um, so that's one of the reasons why we don't rest is there's this kind of cultural pressure on us that's relentless to always be doing something, to be productive, to be achieving. We live in a culture, and I'll use this word strongly, that robs us of our rest. It actually conspires. Now, it's not intentional. There's not like some, maybe there's a politician doing this somewhere, but there's not like some, you know, think tank and like political, you know, conspiracy to let's not let them rest, okay? But the reality of a globalized technocratic world, which is our kind of reality, is that there is a conspiracy to rob us of our rest. Different authors have talked about this different ways, um, but uh, there's, there's kind of... Uh, some different phrases that people have used. One is time sickness. We have this afflicted relationship with time. Uh, some people talk about time poverty, um, which is kind of funny. Like, we have to talk about work-life balance. That tells you how out of balance we are, that we're talking about trying to balance these things that historically have been friends. Uh, but there's a great book by a guy named Alex Pang. He's a, a think tank uh, writer, researcher, futurist in Silicon Valley, and he recently wrote a book called Rest, and he talks about time sickness in that book. I don't think he's a believer as far as I know. He's just writing about the culture phenomena of, of speed versus rest. Here's what he says. In 1982, Larry Dossie, an American physician, coined the term time sickness to describe the obsessive belief and see if this resonates, that time is getting away, that there isn't enough of it, that you must pedal faster and faster to keep up. It's a Western disease, right, to make time finite. Like, this is just our normal, but he's saying this is a Western thing and then to impose speed on all aspects of life. The problem is that our love of speed, our obsession with doing more and more in less and less time, we call that being efficient, uh, has gone too far. It's turned into an addiction, a kind of idolatry. Even when speed starts to backfire, we invoke the go faster gospel. So very religious language to talk about this problem that we have with time. Others have talked about time poverty, right? Like how we're materially rich, but time poor in the West. It was actually a, a word that was coined by the British uh, during some of the labor conversations of the 20th century. But there is a certain violence. If you think about the way we talk about time, there is a certain violence, right? We talk about managing our time as if time is something that we get to control. We talk about making time as if we can create uh, out of nothing, new time, right? We talk about using time. We have a utilitarian kind of transactional view of time. I'm going to use this time to do this. We talk about needing time. Man, I just need a few more minutes, right? There's a longing there. We talk about stealing a little bit of time. We talk about maximizing or wringing out time. The, the big idea here is that we tend to view time as a commodity that we're in control of. And the goal of time for Americans is to domesticate time. It's to kind of bring time under our mastery, under our competency, so that we can squeeze the most out of it because, God forbid, we have just a second that's not accounted for, right? So we live in this, in this time poverty, 
And when we live in a system that kind of values that, that's the way that the world kind of works for most of us, especially if you're in the marketplace. Um, and so we, we find ourselves being overworked and hurried, right? Like this time poverty basically makes all of us, you ever said this, like, I just feel behind? I, like you wake up in the morning and the first thing you think is I'm already behind, right? It's like, some of you wake up, it's like 5, 12 in the morning and you're like one of those type A people and you're like, I'm already behind, I gotta get up, I gotta get the fastest shower I can get, you know, jump in, jump out, make sure I get it real quick and then, you know, like instant coffee in the office, you know, like we have this feeling of being behind, and, and it leads us to a hurried lifestyle where we don't rest well. Pang in the same book says, studies reveal that 37% of Americans take fewer than seven days of vacation a year. In fact, only 14% take vacations that last longer than two weeks. And you're thinking like, well, who does that? Who takes vacations longer than the rest of the world, okay? Like the rest of everybody who doesn't live in America. Americans take the shortest paid vacations of anyone in the world, and 20% of those do often spend their vacation staying in touch with their jobs through their computers or their phones. The point, even when we do vacation, we do it poorly. We stink at it. We're not skilled at resting. It creates a hurried pace of life. Now, this gets imported from our cultural experience into our spiritual life. John Ortberg, in his book, The Life You Always Wanted, warns of the danger of a life of hurry. He says, again and again, as we pursue spiritual health, spiritual life, we must do battle with hurry. How many of you are doing battle with hurry? Now, we're mostly succumbing to hurry. We must do battle with hurry. For many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. And he goes on to say, hurry is the great enemy of our spiritual life. Now, I've said this before. I'm all for work. Okay, I just want to go on record. Soma is pro-work. Okay, we're pro-labor. We are pro-people. We are actually pro-speed. And so we understand, like, we live in a complex world that requires us to make fast decisions, to analyze and to forecast and to strategize. But here's the reality. I don't think our problem is that we have to convince you that we love work. I think our problem is we have to convince you and convince ourselves we love work too much and we don't love rest enough. Right? That's the problem. It's not that work's not a good thing. It's that we love work too much. We can get a sense of identity out of our work, and we can just fall into, kind of accidentally and haphazardly, into the speed narrative that faster and more efficient and more effective is not only normal, but virtuous. Especially in Indianapolis. I think this is a problem, right? There's this thing I call the Indianapolis myth. Uh, and I've learned this after having lived here for seven years, that Indianapolis has a little bit of an inferiority complex, okay? We feel overlooked. We compare ourselves to other large cities. We're the 12th or 13th uh, largest city in the country, depending on the year. Um, and, and we kind of have this little brother thing with Chicago, and, and we're kind of always comparing ourselves to New York and trying to convince people that we're the Silicon Valley of the Midwest and all these, you know, like big superlative terms. Um, because when we go outside of Indian, you travel. Like I was in Florida this week, and this guy from the East Coast was like, oh, Indianapolis. Like I drove through there once. And I'm like, hey, it's a, it's a great place to live. Like let me tell you about how awesome Indianapolis is. But most of you who grew up here, if you're not from here, most people who grew up here grew up wanting to get out of Indianapolis. That's the goal. It's like we're trapped in some kind of a prison, and like the goal of life is to get out. Like you grew up in the suburbs, and you're just like, I got to fly as far and as fast from Indianapolis as I can. So the goal is by 18. Like if you're still living here at 21, like your life's over. You're basically a sad excuse for a human being, right? Like that's some of the mentality. We want to get out. But those who move into the city, it's interesting because this tends to be where you go for grad school. It's where you go for college. It's where you get your first job. It's where you get your first shot at a startup, maybe the first uh, opportunity to raise capital for a new initiative. And what we say to ourselves is we'll move to Indianapolis and we'll work really hard because we have a hard work ethic and we're Hoosiers and we want to make sure that nobody else in the world sees us as lazy and we want to keep up with New York City and LA and these other big cities But we'll just do that for a season, then once the season's over, we'll throttle back and slow down. It's just, how many times have you said this to yourself? It's just a season. Lie. (laughs) 
18 becomes 21, becomes 28, becomes 45. And all of a sudden, a season becomes a lifestyle, right? And you find that you can't throttle back, that you have more responsibility, right? You are, there's more pressure to be more productive, to have more output. And we get into the cycle of exhaustion, right? Pressure, stress, burnout, burden. And that's the situation that we find ourselves in. And if we're honest, we kind of like it. We enjoy, there's something inside of us that secretly enjoys the busyness, being able to tell people, you know, I'm so busy, right? Like, when was the last time you had a conversation with somebody and you're like, how's it going? Man, I have so much margin. You know, like, I have so much freedom. I have so much time. I'm not getting anything done at work, like, not meeting any deadlines, sleeping wherever I want, eating whatever I want. Like, you look at that person, you're like, they need to be committed, right? Like, that is not... Uh, certainly a virtue, right? We like being able to say to people, I'm just so tired. I'm just so busy. I'm so stressed out. It becomes a badge of honor. There's actually a study done recently um, that, that suggested that we tend to look at people who say they're busy as having greater status and wealth. And so it becomes a way that we even kind of identify ourselves with a certain class of people. We found last year in our health survey that the majority of people at SOMA don't rest well. Very few people take an intentional Sabbath. Most of us are not experiencing the rest that God has invited us into. And so that's why we're preaching this one first, teaching this one first. So let me just pause and just ask you to breathe. Some of you are like maybe frustrated right now. Some of you feel guilty right now. It's like, how are you doing? Like, how's it going? Like, I don't mean like, how's it going? Like, I'm crushing it in business. I don't mean like, how's it going like I have the best kids in the world. I just mean like, how's it with your soul? How's it really going? Do you feel rested? How's it really going with you? God invites us to work from our rest, not for our rest. That's the imitation of a Sabbath way of life. Let me define it for us as we go through this series. A Sabbath way of life is slowing down I didn't say stopping all the way. I didn't say becoming lazy. Just slowing down the pace to create space for regular rhythms of resting in God and His grace. That's the invitation for a Sabbath way of life. I want to set this up here and talk about the gift of Sabbath. But before we talk about the gift of Sabbath, I want to talk about the context under which Sabbath was given in the book of Exodus. Now, I know you probably had a quiet time this morning and spent three hours meditating on Exodus, and you're an Old Testament scholar. But in case you're not, uh, let me just uh, remind you about the flow of the narrative in the book of Exodus. Exodus is about liberation. Exodus, Exodus is about God's people being in slavery in Egypt under this empire of Egypt with Pharaoh as kind of the, the representation of an anxious, productive uh, social system. And God enters in, so he hears the cries of his people, right? Like, you, you remember the story in Exodus chapter 1 and in the early chapters of Genesis, and we'll go through this again here in just a few weeks. Uh, there is ceaseless productivity, right? There's this anxious toil that the Pharaoh is saying, continue to, to, to work, work harder, work harder, work more efficient, uh, work with less bricks, you know, work with more, less straw and make more bricks, right? There's this constant pressure on the people of God. There's no rest. There's a 24-7 uh, labor situation, and the people cry out to God. And God hears their prayers, and he responds by miraculously liberating them from uh, the Pharaoh and from slavery in Egypt. And so what we see in chapters 16 to 20 is kind of a, re a regime change, right? You have a regime change. You have a new administration, a new king. God establishes himself as the covenant ruler of his people, right? He delivers them, brings them through the Red Sea, and then takes them to Mount Sinai. What's he doing on Mount Sinai? Not just giving them rules, he's actually inviting them into a new society, He's inviting them to move from this society where it's all about productivity uh, and, and kind of empire values, right? Where we see one another, this is kind of the heart of a market economy, we see one another as commodities and competition and threats. And he's now inviting them to see one another as image bearers, as neighbors, and to love one another. And so all the rules, the 600 plus laws that are given, are all about a just and flourishing society. 
They're not just about don't eat this and don't go to this place and blue laws and these kinds of things. It's an invitation to be neighbors to one another. That's the regime change. New administration, new laws. And then in chapters uh, 20 to, you know, kind of the end of the book, in the mid-20s to the end of the book, we see the tabernacle, which represents the power and the presence of God. Um, And so Sabbath is given right in the flow of this narrative. And Sabbath keeping is given as a contrast between two systems, right? Two ways of life. This isn't just like uh, a good idea or a luxury if you get to it. He's saying this is actually to mark you as a people, to set you apart, in the midst of an empire, in the midst of multiple empires that were about power and exploitation and dominance and violence and coercion and, and, and productivity and anxiety. He says, no, I am a God who rests. And if you're going to be in relationship with me, I invite you to, to be a people who rest. Matter of fact, it's going to be one of the key distinctions of how people know you're my people is that you don't work 24-7 and that you trust me to be the one who provides for you. Pharaoh represents anxious productivity. Yahweh represents delightful rest. Sabbath, you could say, before it's a gift, is really an act of defiance. Sabbath is resisting empires and powers that would subjugate us and dehumanize us, treat us as less than image bearers. Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, says it like this. So imagine, says Moses at Sinai, you who engage in production and consumption are not little replicas of anxiety-driven fear. I mean, think about that. Their entire lives, all they had known is harsh taskmasters, productivity, quotas, deadlines, no rest, no love, no justice. Like, it's hard for some of us to imagine that. Some of us grew up that way. Not many of us probably in this room grew up that way. Maybe our parents or our grandparents or cousins grow up that way. But just imagine how shocking it would have been to go to Mount Sinai and to be expecting God to be like Pharaoh. And all of a sudden, God says, I am the Lord your God. I am not like that God. I am this God. I am a God of covenant. I am a God of relationship. I am a God of rest. You are not valued for what you do, but who I am and who you are in relationship to me. Massive paradigm shift. He says, you are, not, you are in the image of the creator God who did not need to work to get ahead, nor do you. God invites the ones at Sinai to a new life of neighborly freedom in which Sabbath is the cornerstone, the cornerstone of faithful freedom. Such faithful practice of work stoppage is an act of resistance. It declares in body ways that we will not participate in the anxiety system that pervades our social environment. Sabbath was protest. Saying, you want to shake your fist at the man? Rest. You want to shake your fist at the market? You want to shake your fist at injustice? How about you rest? Matter of fact, Sabbath is one of the primary ways, as we'll see next week, that they protected justice in their society because it allowed everybody to rest. What is Sabbath? It's an act of resistance, but what does it actually look like? Because again, for many of us, if you grew up in small town Indiana, Sabbath was about prohibitions, right? You can't do this. The businesses are closed down. You can't eat good food. You can't eat good drink. You can't play cards. You can't watch TV. Uh, I remember like I didn't grow up in church, but the first time, uh, one of the first uh, years I was a Christian, I was in college, and a guy invited a big group of college students over to his house, and we had no idea that he was what you call a strict Sabbatarian, and so we thought we were going over there. He's a football coach. We're going to watch football and eat popcorn. And he, like, basically we just, like, sat awkwardly in his living room, like, reading the Bible all day. And it was, like, one of the worst. Ex- I mean, there was no joy, no delight. It was just miserable. So that's what I think of when I think of Sabbath. And it was, like, no wonder it took me, like, 10 years to get back around to a healthy view of Sabbath after that. I was very uh, wounded. <laughs> I had a Sabbath wound. <laughs> So what is Sabbath, right? It's not about, let me just say this, it's not about prohibitions, it's about life. It is not about what you can do, it's about being invited into the life that you were designed to live. That's the Hebrew understanding of Sabbath. It is about an invitation to deep and meaningful and purposeful life with God and life with other people. That is the heart 
of Sabbath. You don't hear anything else I say today. Hear that. It is not about what you can't do. It is about the kind of person that God is inviting you to become. That's what we're calling it, not Sabbath, but a Sabbath way of life. It is a new way of being human in the world. Again, not devaluing work, but just saying like work and rest should be friends, right? Work and rest are kind of enemies in the West, but work and rest were designed to be complementary friends in the flow of what it means to be human. So let me talk about what Sabbath is quickly, and I want to give you four words just to make it really simple. Uh, if you have never read Marva Dawn, I just want to strongly encourage you to buy this book. It's a really easy read. Uh, Marva Dawn is a single lady who is, in my opinion, the, the leading scholar on the Sabbath, but very accessible. She actually, she wrote this, she I think is from South Bend, wrote a Sabbath book while she was in grad school at Notre Dame. So if you think you're too busy, just ask Marva, right? She's got all kinds of advice on how to do this in the busyness of life. But she identifies four movements of Sabbath that I think are helpful categories for us to think about in terms of what is Sabbath. Because I'm like, I have no idea. Is it a day off? Is it a vacation? I don't even know if I believe that Sabbath is still like a binding principle. So let me just give you these four words. The first one she talks about is Sabbath is about ceasing. Ceasing. We see that here. Again, going back to Exodus 31. um, You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. You shall observe the Sabbath throughout your generations. It is a sign between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. That word Sabbath, Shabbat, Shabbat literally means to cease. It is like the idea of right now stop and put down your stuff, right? Like if you're uh, an educator, it's like when the bell rings, Put down your stuff, pack it away, it's time to go. That's the idea. Every Friday night at sundown for a Jew, the proverbial kind of symbolic bell rung in the community, work was ceased and stopped, and it was a time to cease from all kinds of things. It was a time to cease from work. It was a time to cease from productivity and accomplishment. Basically just saying like, this is enough for this week. I can't do anymore. It was a time to cease from anxious worry and fretting. It was a time to cease, even in the Jewish uh, economic system, from buying and selling, right? Like, they didn't buy anything. There was no commercial activity. They shut down the marketplace. Like, everything went dark. They didn't buy anything. Because if I have to buy something, what does that mean for my neighbor? Somebody has to be there to sell it to me. It's ceasing from the grind of the mundaneness of life. And, and, he, and he points us back to Genesis and says this isn't just about law. This is, a, this is a rhythm that God's built into the fabric. This is a sign that points us to the way that we were designed in the beginning, right? We are created in the image of God. And what was so different about Yahweh versus the other gods is he was the only God who rested. The universe was not, in the biblical narrative, formed out of chaos and violence but a God who blesses and creates and then step, steps back to rest. Look at Genesis chapter 2. If you want to flip back to the beginning of your Bible, or I'll just read it. I have it on the screen here for you. Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Now, were they finished? No, of course not, right? It's not finished in the sense of finality, but finished in terms of God has built the essential structures, and now he's kind of empowering creation to be generative. He's inviting creation to continue to grow and expand, so he doesn't completely remove his presence or else the universe would fall apart, but he's saying, I'm creating room and space now for the universe to flourish in partnership with me. This is a co-laboring of God with creation. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blesses the seventh day, and he made it holy because on it God rested from all his work. You get in the picture he's resting uh, from all his work that he had done in creation. So we see that the Sabbath is a day that's blessed by God. It's not about prohibition. It is about blessing. I'm giving this to you as a gift. Now, we have a hard time receiving gifts, right? Because we want to pay for gifts. But God says, I give this to you out of sheer love and grace for your vitality, your freedom, your liberation. And this rhythm of six days, work and rest, 
these complementary things are wired into the very fabric of creation. Your body, like if you're a doctor, you know, your body requires physiological rest to flourish. You can't do without it for very long. It's woven into the fabric of creation. God blesses this day, and he makes it holy. Now, for most of us, holiness is a bad word because, again, it has like prohibition connotations. But the word holy simply means the first time it shows up in the Bible. It means set apart. It actually means the opposite of what we think. It's a special day. It's a day that is different than all the other days. In the Jewish mind, it was a day that you lived for the entire week. It was the climax. Abraham Heschel, who wrote a fantastic, he's a rabbi, wrote a fantastic work on the Sabbath, says it is the climax of the week. It is not a throwaway day. It is not like, well, if I have time on, on Saturday in their mind, Sunday for us, then I'll get there. No, it is the high point of the week. God rested. God, it actually says, finished his work on Sunday. Isn't that interesting? What work did he finish on Sunday? The work of creating Sabbath joy. It's a day that's holy. The word holy means set aside, set apart, devoted to God, devoted to rest. This is different because, again, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, um, holiness was about place and space, not time. The gods were expected to show up in the mountains and in the forests and in the, the streams and the rivers and in tabernacles. But what God is saying is that I can't be bound by any of those places or spaces. I'm not going to be found in those places. I'm going to be found in time. God is making time sacred. He is making time holy. As Heschel would go on to say later in his work, the Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. Architecture in time. That just sounds cool, right? Like architecture in time. God makes time holy. He invites us to lay down our work to observe sacred time with him and with other people. That's what it means to cease. It's really an invitation to trust God to be your provider, to trust God to be your protector, to trust God to do what you cannot do in your own strength. That's the heart of Exodus 16, which is another place we find a Sabbath uh, invitation. Uh, in that case, the, the people were out in the wilderness and God was feeding them with manna, which the word manna kind of, uh, it's humorous, kind of means like, what, what the? <laughs> like, we don't know what this is. Um, so like, they look at it and they're like, what is this? Oh, it's, that's, that's the word manna. So God's providing manna and he says, for six days, you're supposed to provide uh, for yourselves. You go out and you gather the manna, but on the sixth day, you, you gather in twice as much and then you gather nothing on the seventh day. And what's he communicating there? You are not God. I will provide for you. Matter of fact, if they gathered more than they needed, it would be spoiled by worms. God would not preserve it. He did that several times to remind them, you're not God. I am God. I am the one who will provide for you. I am the one who will multiply provision for you. I am the God of abundance. But the question is, will you trust me? That's what Sabbath is about. Do we trust God to be God? Or do we need to be our own God's? When you refuse to rest, when I refuse to rest, we are saying to God, I've got this. Thank you very much. Wayne Mueller, in his excellent book on the Sabbath, says this, Sabbath requires surrender. If we only stop when we are finished with all of our work, we will never stop because our work is never completely done. With every accomplishment, there arises a new responsibility. Every swept floor, this is true, right? Every swept floor invites another sweeping. Every child bathed invites another bathing. If you're in business, every transaction invites another transaction. Every acquisition invites another acquisition, right? Everything we do requires more and more and more and more. When was the last time you stopped and said, you know what? I think that's good. I think I'm finished. I don't need to make any more money. I don't need to get a bigger place. Or like, I'm good. Like, no, the inclination of the human heart and the system in which we live is to say, no, more and more and more and more. He says, when all life moves in such cycles, what's ever finished? If we refuse rest until we're finished, we will never rest until we die. Right? Like, you can either have a voluntary Sabbath or an involuntary Sabbath, and it's called death. You choose. 
Sabbath dissolves the artificial urgency of our days because it liberates us from the need to be finished. We stop because there are forces larger than we that take care of the universe. While our efforts are important, necessary, and useful, they are not, nor are we, indispensable. The galaxy will somehow manage without us for this hour, this day. And so we are invited, nay, commanded, to relax and enjoy, I love this phrase, our relative unimportance, our humble place at the table in a very large world. I know you're a big shot. I know you're a big deal in your neighborhood, in your family, your workplace. But God rested, and he had bigger things to do and a bigger reputation than you. Jesus rested, Savior of the world, right? Hung on the cross, died for our sins, miraculously healed people. I don't think any of us are doing that. He rested. Matter of fact, Jesus never asked for permission. He just ghosted people. Like, he would just disappear and go into the wilderness I'm not even texting anybody. I'm just unplugging. I'm gone. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Jesus in the lonely place. We're just not as important as we think we are. And men, me first. I just have way too much delusion of grandeur. So God invites us to cease. God invites us to rest. We see that here over and over and over again. Only when we stop can we then rest, right? We have to stop first in order to be able to rest. We have to put our stuff down, back away from it, put it in a box, hide it, right? Like the Jews had a Sabbath box and they would literally put like everything that could potentially distract them in that box and they would put it away. That might be helpful for some of us that are, uh, you know, technology folks to like take it, put it in the box and hide it because the only, like give somebody the combination, tell them to like, you know, tell your kids to go hide it somewhere, right? Like that might be the only way we're able to really enjoy. But then to rest, whole person rest, intellectual rest, right? We stop thinking and forecasting and strategizing uh, and we, we learn to trust God. We, we know that like our best strategizing, if we're honest, We call it strategic planning, but it's really strategic guessing. We trust God. We rest from having to be gods and figure out the complexity of the world. Spiritual rest, right? Being at peace with God, being reconciled to God. We'll never be at peace in the world if we're not at peace with God. We'll never experience reconciliation horizontally if we're not reconciled in our soul with God. So we rest spiritually. We rest emotionally. We have space, which I think is why, particularly men, are terrified of rest because we're afraid of what we might feel if we stop. We just are so good at like numbing ourselves. Uh, I think it was Bertrand Russell, not a Christian, who said, every man is in flight, as him or Nietzsche, every man is in flight from himself. That's why we don't like to rest. Blaise Pascal said, uh, the majority of human evil in the world comes because uh, men and women can't sit silent in a room. We're terrified. What if I feel shame? What if I feel mad? What if I feel guilty? You know, what if I feel, you know, like contempt? Like we're so afraid of that rest and God invites us just to let it be what it is. Let it out, right? Quit pushing it down. Social rest was a big deal. We'll talk more about this next week. Deuteronomy chapter five. It wasn't just rest for us. It wasn't rest for the people of God. It was rest for the servants, for the employees. Even he says for the animals, I think we have this passage, even the animals, even creation itself has to lie dormant It has to lie fallow in order to be able to flourish. And that's why we see the rhythms of Sabbath. We'll spend a whole sermon on this next week from the daily gleaning and not gleaning out to the edge of the fields all the way to a 50-year generational jubilee where literally the entire socioeconomic structure got reset. All land went back so that it would ensure that although there was poverty in Israel, there would never be multi-generational poverty. And we could learn something from that. I'm making, I'm making a political statement, it's just in the Bible, okay? So rest, embracing, right? Embracing God. Sabbath is about God. It's not about you getting rest. It's about you embracing life with God. It's not just about what you don't do. It's about what you give yourself to, giving yourself to God, giving yourself to life with God and life with others. That's why the Hebrews named the days of their week in relationship to the Sabbath. You didn't have Sunday and Monday and Tuesday. You had the first day to Sabbath on Sunday, the second day to Sabbath on Monday, the third. There was a sense of a countdown of like, this day is awesome. 
We're going to set it apart, make it special, get out the special china, the special food and feast and drink and have fun and enjoy life. For us, Sabbath is a day when my kids get to drink Coke, and they love it. It's amazing. We started that like 10 years ago. They don't get it mostly any other day, but that's the day they look forward to. That's the kind of anticipation that we want to build. Like how many of us look forward to Sabbath like that? Not many of us, right? It's just like, if I get there, I get there. So it's a day for embracing. That's why Jews called it the queen. Literally, it was the idea of prepare your house. The queen is coming. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Embrace me. Receive me. Orient your life around me. That's what we do on the Sabbath. We we embrace God. We embrace ourselves. We embrace others. We embrace the world. It was a day of healing for Jesus. It was a restorative day. Do you know that Jesus did more miracles on the Sabbath than any other day of the week? The Sabbath is about unleashing the miracles and the power and the presence of God in our lives. And yet, how many of us just say, eh, maybe I'll get there one day? We're missing out on the invitation that God has for us for life. The final thing is feasting, right? God steps back and he refreshes himself. And that that is just the idea of celebration, right? We step back and we celebrate. God wasn't tired, right? God didn't go and be like, man, creation was really tough. I need a day off. I'm just going to go in my prayer closet, get me a turkey club, and just check out for a day. You know, like God was celebrating, going, wow, look how amazing this is. It was a day of delight. He literally refreshed himself. He refreshed himself. He stepped back to enjoy his creation. Dan Allender, in his book, Sabbath, says every human being is in some kind of a weekly war. We strive, fight, retreat, negotiate, surrender. We crave rest. We thirst for joy. Even those who know the pleasure of Sabbath are seduced to forget the oasis of play that awaits those who give their hearts to Sabbath. Our war is not with flesh and blood. It's not with our culture. It's not with our job, he says. Our reluctance to Sabbath is not a fight with busyness, drivenness, or time. We are caught in and fight battles against delight. Delight unnerves us. God's call to delight terrifies us. To surrender to delight is to hear God's passionate extravagance spoken in a manner that is uniquely crafted for our joy. He says, we're terrified to play. You take yourselves way too seriously, God says. Way more seriously than I do. How about you take yourselves less seriously, take me more seriously? Sabbath's a day to play. Again, uh, for those who are married in the room, uh, the the rabbis commanded intimacy on Sabbath. Okay, so just saying. Like, and, and maybe we need to recover some of that, right? Like, it was a day of feasting. It was a day to bring the best, the best food, the best parties, invite your neighbors and come and throw a celebration. That's why Jesus was derided by the religious leaders as one who eats with tax collectors and sinners. He came eating and drinking and it ticked off all the really uptight, buttoned up religious people. So I want to close just with an invitation for us to experiment with Sabbath, right? To experiment with Sabbath. Now again, Uh, Let me make the distinction here. I'm not inviting you to just take a day off. Uh, Sabbath is not a vacation. We think of Sabbath as a day to catch up on chores, as a day to do maybe uh, all the unpaid work that we didn't get to do throughout the week. Uh, We think of Sabbath as like getting in our worst clothes, sweatpants, and like vegging out and binge watching Netflix documentaries, right? That's how we tend to think of a day off. But here's the thing, even when we do that, even when we take vacations, like we work for the weekend and then we take off and we go outside the city and we play and we, we leisure and this kind of thing. But what happens when you get back? You get back and what do you say to yourself before you go to work on Monday morning? I am exhausted. I'm tired. I'm probably more tired. Now I'm mad because I took a vacation that didn't refresh me and now I go back to work more angry than I was before my vacation. Eugene Peterson calls that a bastard Sabbath. His words, not mine. Sabbath is about learning deliberate rest. Learning 
deliberate rest. It's a skill that has to be required, uh, that has to be acquired and refined. We start with acknowledging we stink at rest, and then we say, okay, I've got to learn how to be deliberate in my rest. You're familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, 10,000 uh, hours to, to master something, four hours a day, 10 years uh, of master. But he says, not just any kind of practice will do. It's deliberate practice that brings the kind of mastery we, we desire. The researchers found that deliberate was what separated the good from the great. It's the same thing with rest. It has to be deliberate. It has to be in accord with who we are, how God's wired us, what's life-giving to us, the season of life that we're in. All of that requires lots of experimentation. So when do you Sabbath? What, I don't know. I don't know what works for you. There's no prescripted day. It doesn't have to be Sunday, but it can't just be going to church. Going to church is a part of Sabbath, maybe, but it's not the fullness of Sabbath. It's a day of rest. So for me, Sunday is exhausting. It's a work day. My Sabbath starts Sunday night and goes into Monday. It's a day for my wife and I to experiment with fun and joy, to get out and bike together, to go grab lunch together, to just nap if we want to, to read if we want to. I mean, it is a day where we power down and we are learning to rest together, right? But for you, it might be Friday night. It might be Saturday night. It might be Wednesday night. It doesn't matter. Just pick one and start. And maybe don't try for a whole day. Maybe it's just a morning, right? If you're doing nothing, do something, right? If you're doing something, be more intentional with your something. But the point is, it doesn't matter. You just have to be intentional. You have to make preparations. You have to experiment. We've given you all kinds of tools. I want to fill these up on the screen here quickly to help you. These were written with you in mind, okay? This is not written for a monk. These are written for, like, busy men and women who live uh, as, you know, doctors and lawyers and, and, and uh, contractors and plumbers and everybody in between. This is written to where anybody, we've spent months and months calling all the research that we could find on spiritual formation and on Sabbath and writing it into a guide. So this is our MC guide. This would be for every missional community, but you can download this for yourself, for your discipleship group. Maybe you and a bunch of business owners want to get together and talk about what Sabbath could look like in, in the workplace. Maybe a bunch of moms want to get together and talk about what it could look like with, with busy moms. But go, can we go back to that last slide real fast? Uh, in the middle, sorry, backwards. One more. In the middle there, you'll see scheming together. That's part of what we want to do in our MCs uh, every week is take some time to strategic plan this thing together, to just get together and say, let's help each other figure out what Sabbath uh, looks like without being legalistic, without being judgmental. Again, Colossians says, don't let anybody judge you with regard to how you do Sabbath. It's not about indictment. It's about an invitation to rest. And so we're going to spend time literally planning Sabbath together in MC and then, uh, and then reporting back on it. Some of you are like, I'm not going to MC for about a month. Okay, so next slide. Uh, this is a spiritual formation plan. So this is part of a larger plan and larger initiative. We'd love to see people fill this out. The next slide uh, all kind of culminates in this. And, and again, use this as a tool to help you think through uh, an invitation to Sabbath, some of the things that keep you from doing that well, and then some of the limitations that you might have. All this can be found on our website there. You can download all this, and we'll be talking more about it in the weeks to come. Here's the thing I want you to leave with. We, just, we don't just keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath keeps us. The Sabbath keeps us alive. The Sabbath keeps us refreshed. The Sabbath keeps us present and empowered by God's Spirit to be a life-giving force in our relationships and in the systems in which we live. God has given us Sabbath rest for delight. It's an invitation, not an indictment, not a judgment on work. It is an invitation to be fully alive. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. All of you, weak, burdened, weary, isolated, fragmented, stressed out, worried, overworked, hurried. Come to me and I'll give you rest. And only Jesus can give us that kind of rest. Hebrews 4 says that Jesus offers his people true rest, the rest of the soul, the rest that, that we really long for, right? Because our restlessness is not just about work. Our restlessness is in trying to prove ourselves to God and prove ourselves to the world, that we have what it takes to be our own gods. And God says that's idolatry, that is 
bunk. That does not work. It does not lead to life. You don't have what it takes to be your own God. So come to me, he says. Find rest. Are you tired and exhausted enough today to hear that and respond? That's the offer of life that's on the table for you right now. So I want you to receive that. And let's pray together and ask God to help us receive that and to respond. Because this is not logistical primarily for most of us. We know how to plan. We're smart. We're competent. Most of us are educated. It's not logistical. It's a spiritual problem, right? It's a, an emotional problem. It's a relational problem. It's a communion problem. It's not primarily logistical. And so let us, let us respond to God, right? Because we will not do this unless we believe God is the kind of God who provides. We will not do this unless we believe that God is the kind of God who heals through rest. And so let's receive this invitation. I just want to take a moment, let's pause, let's pray, let's reflect. Afterwards, we'll take communion together. We have stations in the front, stations in the back. If you're a follower of Jesus, we'd invite you to come and receive communion with us as a reminder that God is for you and he is with you and he wants to invite you to experience real, authentic, sustainable rest. And so let's just cry out to him, right, in the midst of our oppression as the Israelites did in the book of Exodus. God, save us. God, deliver us. God, we are a people who are weary and exhausted and burdened, and we need you. Father, we lift up our cares, our concerns, our burdens, our hearts to you. We are an anxious people who need to be delivered from a system that seeks to rob us of the rest that has been given to us as a privilege as your children. Help us, God, this week to recover a vision for Sabbath rest, true delight, true ceasing and resting and embracing and feasting on you and our relationships with those you've placed around us for our good. Give us this grace. God, teach us what it looks like to be a people of rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.